Good morning, and welcome to Uncle Paul's Jazz Closet. This is your host, Cindy McGurl. I would like to thank my sponsor, The Leather Bench in Camden. Um, if um, you have questions or comments, you can call the studio during music at 207-593-0013, um, or you can go on um, Uncle Paul's Jazz Closet Facebook page, which I keep open during the show. And um, I have a special show today. I have my second sort of interview. They're more like chats and just talking. Um, and I'm excited to have um, what who Paul called the other Bill, and that's Bill McHenry, uh, saxophonist, um, who happens to be a Maine native. He grew up in Blue Hill. And he'll be joining us at about 10.30 a.m. And meanwhile, I am going to feature... Um, some of his music. Paul played the drums on three of his albums. And I'm going to start you off with a tune from Ghosts of the Sun, which is the title track, Ghosts of the Sun. Then this um, this album happened to be released um, on the day Paul died, um, but it was recorded in 2006 for Sunnyside Records. And we have Bill McHenry on tenor saxophone, Ben Monder on guitar, Reed Anderson on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
And that was saxophonist uh, Bill McHenry. And the first tune was Ghosts of the Sun from his um, CD, Ghosts of the Sun, which was released in 2011. And the, that song you just heard was African Song, and both compositions by Bill McHenry. And that is from the CD, Roses, which was recorded at the same time as Ghosts of the Sun in 2006, but um, Roses was released in 2007. And the lineup is the same. Bill McHenry on tenor saxophone, Ben Monder on guitar, Reed Anderson on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. And um, so I think that uh, we'll hear more when Bill comes on, but uh, Bill first met Paul not long after he moved to New York City in 1992, I think he said is when it was. And a lot of the people that he knew and some of the a lot of the pe players that were his age or a little older um, were playing with Paul in Paul's electric bebop band. And um, um, but Bill is a Maine native. He grew up in Blue Hill and um, he Paul used to always tell me about him, I think, because we had that main connection. I think he used to talk about me to Bill and Bill to me. Um, and uh, I did finally get to meet Bill a number of years ago when I was doing a craft show up in the Blue Hill area. So he's often around this area in the um, summers, and you can usually catch him playing somewhere. So I'll put a link to his website um, so people can keep an eye on that. Maybe he'll be around here this coming summer, and you can hear him play live. Um, he's really got a unique sound, and I think that's what... Paul really liked about his playing. Um, he, you know, I think when he first met him, he he was a real mentor to him. He, um, I think he helped Bill develop um, just by his uh, encouragement and uh, and then when they talked about music and stuff. So, but like I said, we'll hear more about that later. Next up, I have um, the first CD that um, Paul played on with Bill. And that is 2002's Bill McHenry Quartet featuring Paul Modian. And it's the same lineup as what I just played, and but it's on Fresh Sound Records. And we're going to start with the tune Stars. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you. 
That was William, and then in parentheses, drums, a composition by Bill McHenry from the CD Ghosts of the Sun on Sunnyside Records. And um, Bill McHenry, tenor saxophone, Ben Monder, guitar, Reed Anderson on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. Um, at the top of the set, we heard Stars, another Bill McHenry tune from his um, 2002 Fresh Sound release, Bill McHenry Quartet featuring Paul Modian, the same lineup. And in between, we heard uh, Warren Marsh, and that was My Melancholy Baby by Burnett, Norton, and Watson. And that's a 1958 recording from Atlantic Records. Warren Marsh on tenor saxophone, Paul Chambers on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. And that album is one that Paul told Bill that was one of his favorites. So I'm going to play a couple of tunes from that today. Um, I want to remind you that you are listening to Community Radio, WRFR 93.3 FM, Rockland, Maine, and streaming online at WRFR.org. Um, and if you have a question for Bill McHenry, um, you can post it on the Facebook um, page if in the comment section if you want. And um, I'll refresh that um, before I call him at 1030 and see what kind of questions people have or what they're interested in hearing about. Um, for readings today, I just have a couple of short um, notes from some of just sort of a, bo a book, a notebook of Paul's that he jotted things down in doesn't have an exact date in it, but I think it's between 2010 and 2011. And um, of the gigs that Paul had to cancel when he got really sick, uh, there were a couple with Bill McHenry, and there was a new band and stuff, so that's uh, too bad that that didn't get to happen. But it made me look at this notebook, so um, it's just it's kind of irreverent, but I'm just going to read it anyway. <laughs> the sweet is salty, the tears are not. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, that's the sweat is salty. The tears are not. Sorry, that makes a big difference in the meaning. It's amazing how good I feel when I play well. Cho Castro died in 2010, question mark. He introduced me to Mugu Gaipan in the 60s. <laughs> so on that note, we're going to hear excerpt, um, a Warren Marsh and William Bauer composition from the 1958 Warren Marsh album. Thank you. 
At the top of the set, we heard Warren Marsh excerpt 
1958 Atlantic release, Warren Marsh tenor saxophone, Paul Chambers on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. And that was one of Paul's favorite recordings, as told to Bill McHenry, who we're featuring today. And after that, we heard, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Alfambra Magica, a Bill McHenry composition from the Bill McHenry Quartet featuring Paul Modian, a 2002 Fresh Sound release. Bill McHenry on tenor saxophone, Ben Monder on guitar, Reed Anderson on bass, and Paul Modian on drums. And then after that, um, I thought we'd play something that um, from the Electric Bebop Band, and this um, was also from 2002. And the common denominator is Ben Monder on electric guitar and Paul Modian on drums, of course. And But that was a Ben Monder composition, Ludius Pangolin. I don't know if I pronounced that right either. You may have noticed I have a little trouble with pronunciation. And uh, that album is Holiday for Strings, a winter and winter release. And it's uh, Pietro Tonolo on alto saxophone, Chris Cheek on tenor. Steve Cardenas on electric guitar, Ben Monder also on guitar, and Anders Christensen on electric bass. And um, I'm going to play, actually I'm going to read another reading first, and then I have one more tune to the, take you to the top of the hour. Um, this is um, it's another note from that same 2010-11 notebook of Paul's, and I we used this in the um in the sort of the liner notes for the concert that was a, a memorial concert for Paul that happened um back in 2000 and uh oh I can't I think it was 2012 I have a terrible memory for dates um the last couple of gigs near the end of the night last couple of tunes the sound the feel two different clubs the sound of the stick on cymbal the same, soft, real, strong. It's new. Even now at this age, something new. Satisfaction, pleasure, total and complete joy. To take us to the top of the hour, I'm going to play a tune called Fall Somewhere by uh, French bassist Nicolas Moreau. And um, this was recorded in 2011 uh, right around the same time as Paul passed away. And uh, Bill McHenry is featured on tenor saxophone. And I'll read you the other players. Uh, Christopher Panzani, also on tenor. Ol Olivier Boge, alto sax. Pierre Perchaud and David Derzuka, guitars. Antoine Paganotti, Carl Januska on drums.
Welcome back to Community Radio's Uncle Paul's Jazz Closet. This is your host, Cindy McGurl, and we are coming to you live from WRFR 93.3 FM in Rockland, Maine, and streaming online at wrfr.org. I would like to thank my sponsor, The Leather Bench in Camden, and they are open year-round, so right on Main Street, you can check that out. I'm going to get right back into the music, but I want to remind you that around 10.30, we're going to have um, Bill McHenry live um, on the phone, and we're going to start off with another tune from Holiday for Strings. This is Look to the Black Wall, a Palmodian composition. Thank you. 
just heard uh, from the top of the set, Look to the Black Wall, a Palmodian tune from Holiday for Strings. The Abyss opens up 
Bill McHenry, Paul Modian, Ben Monder, and Reed Anderson composition from Roses. And then we heard Graphic from Graphic, the CD um, that Bill McHenry released in 1999, and that was called Old Tune. And it's on Fresh Sound Records, and that has Bill McHenry on tenor saxophone, Ben Monder on guitar, Reed Anderson on bass, and Gerald Cleaver on drums. And then we heard from Roses again, um, another, I, I'm guessing, improvised tune, The City, um, credited to all four players on that record. And I've got um, another short reading from Paul's notebook, very short. And um, on one page he just wrote, I have to play to get unexhausted. And um, I think that towards the end of his life when he wasn't feeling well, music uh, really saved him. And then a few pages later he wrote, I feel good about what I am and what I do. I, I thought that was nice. Um, I've got a couple more tunes before um, we talk to Bill McHenry. And I'm going to play another tune from Graphic called Art Omi. And then I'm going to play Roses 2 from Ghosts of the Sun.
I'm on the telephone right now with uh, Mr. Bill McHenry, saxophonist and Maine native. And um, I guess we'll, we'll start off. Um, I think uh, we, we'll just wait for him to come on the line. He's not. Oh, there you are there. Okay. Say that again, Bill. I'm not sure if you're on the air. Okay, talk now. This is Bill McHenry. All right, you're there. Okay. okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm kind of inept at this stuff, but I'm learning. <laughs> oh, so, it'll, add, it'll <laughs> add to the folks equality later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't you talk a little bit about um, how you first met Paul? Um, you were telling me a little bit about how you hung out with a lot of the electric bebop band guys. And... Um, I guess you hung out down at the Village Vanguard when they were playing, or you know, I yeah, I knew I knew uh, a lot of those guys. Well, I moved to New York in 1992, and I dropped out of uh, New England Conservatory of Music. I'd gone there for a year, and then um, the guys who were like about two or three or four years older than me, who I guess would have just normally graduated from either there or uh, Berkeley, which is right down the street. They all went to. They all were going to New York, and um, you know, I, I didn't really. I had just started playing with those guys, and I didn't really want to be left behind in Boston. I wasn't doing much there, so um, even though I had friends I liked to play with, so so I moved down to New York, and right away one of them, uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel, was I think the first one to start playing with Paul, uh-huh. and then uh, and then Chris Cheek did, which made a lot of sense for all of us because we all really admired. Chris and and um, and then uh, you know Brad Shapik was playing with him and one you know lots of different guys knew and um, so anyways I, I played with I had met Steve Cardenas and he started working with Paul and I think it was at Sweet Basil actually it was before he was playing at the Vanguard with that group but at Sweet Basil he uh, he was playing with the bebop band and, and introduced me to Paul. And they were playing that Thelonious Monk tune called Skippy. And I said, oh, I love that tune, Skippy. And he's, you know, it's a hard tune. I really like it. And he said, well, you should, you should work on it because you might need to play it with us someday. And I thought, oh, that was that's exciting. And then about four years went by. <laughs> and he still had two other saxophone players in his band, Tony Malaby and Chris Cheek. And, but Steve had told me, he said, oh, Paul likes you or he's curious about you. And, uh, you know, he kind of suggested to me that if I had some something, some special event or gig or recording that that Paul would probably do it. Because at that point, he wasn't really known. You know, this is getting to like about two, year 2000. He wasn't that well known for playing with younger people as sideman projects. Uh-huh. It was kind of audacious to ask him to do something like that. You know, so... So, uh, so since Steve told me that was possible, I kind of worked it out with the record company, and I asked Steve what I should ask, you know, what Paul would want, and this and that, and I called him up and left a message on his machine, and uh, as you, you probably remember, his answering machine didn't have an outgoing message, it had the, the, the robot message, you uh-huh. know, yeah. please leave a message. So I left a message and kind of stumbled through it. Hi, Paul Motion. My name is so-and-so, and I met you before, and blah, 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 and I'm making this record. And Ben Monder was on it. I, ben Monder also played in Paul's group, and uh, he didn't, I don't think he knew Reed Anderson. But 
Anyway, he called me back, uh, but I was out of the house when he called me back, and he said, Bill McHenry, this is Paul Motion. Got your message. Well, if you make me an offer I can't refuse, maybe we can work something out. <laughs> so I called him back, and we talked it over. And um, I knew some particulars about him just from hearing about him from the other guys. that He didn't like to rehearse a lot. And um, that he didn't, you know, use uh, sheet. He didn't want to use sheet music. Look at sheet music. And for the kind of music that I wrote, that was perfect. You know, I didn't need any of that. And all the kind of feels and styles and everything that I worked with were all things that, you know, he had been doing for 20 years already. You know, even the most modern things I did, he had dealt with all that stuff by the 80s. So... I felt really comfortable that way. I liked that approach. And um, so we, we met in the studio. I picked him up, drove him out to New Jersey. Uh, you know, I remember that morning he had told me he'd been up since four in the morning. He'd woken up early and read all his back, ish back issues of the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, you know, I was tired because, you know, um, a young kid, New York, like, you know, I stayed up late, getting up early, well, you know, okay, I got to get up early and play and whatever. He had been awake for, you know, six hours by the time I picked him up, wearing these brand new cool sneakers and, you know, <laughs> waiting outside for me. It was exciting. So we picked him up and set it up in the studio, and I remember really well for that first record uh, that the band was set up kind of like north, east, southwest, like all like in a, like a diamond. And he was facing me like he was north and I was south. We were facing each other with Reed and uh, Ben Mondra on either side of us. And so I'd never played with him, but I was staring right at him for the whole record. Yeah. Just to, to feel it and anticipate it and stuff. And, you know, when, when I had heard him all those times over 10 years, hearing him play with, you know, all sorts of friends of mine and everything, people that I'd played with, you know, I had all these ideas like, oh, well, you know, if I got to play with him, I would do this and that. Or, oh, I would do this with this moment, this and that. And we got in there to the studio, and I played the first thing, and it got to the solo, and he just hit a, like a chick, chick, boom. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really expecting to, you know, I forgot about the part where, like, you know, you're you're there absorbing the other person's music and it has that impact, you know, just as a listener. So, you know, basically it's just I, I didn't realize how hard those punches were, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but I got through it and let him beat me up and, and, uh, and I played through it and uh, it sounded good on the recording and he liked it. So you recorded right away, like right with, away. Uh, so, and you didn't have sheet music, so no. you just he just was sort of listening to what he was hearing and going from there. Yeah, I would yeah. say like, yeah. Pardon me. I would say like you know, oh, this one is. Uh, it was in a way it was cool for me because a lot of my ideas that I had were a little bit unorthodox. You know, like sometimes I got funny looks from other drummers when I told them you know what I wanted to do. But but since I didn't have a chart and he was just winging it, he was cool with the ideas. Like, I would say, okay, well, this one, it doesn't sound like it's in time, but it is in time. And, um, you know, you guys play t you guys play normal tempo with it, and uh, I kind of play through that, and we meet at the end. Uh -huh. So, 
you know, he was real comfortable with that. So he'd just kind of go for it and wing it. And, you know, what helped, too, though, was that the other guys in the rhythm section, Ben Monder had played with them a lot, and Reed Anderson, although he hadn't played with Paul, had a lot of experience playing with really older masters, sophisticated drummers. Reed had played with Mickey Roker, Edgar Bateman, you know, Ralph Peterson Jr., a lot of really strong drummers. So he wasn't intimidated by... um, by that he just looked forward to it knew what to do uh-huh yeah you you guys really uh yeah it's really great that you did three albums together because i think they really i don't know they really show a connection and uh yeah but i think i don't know i think it's amazing that you didn't rehearse or anything and just started recording <laughs> yeah we just went for it <laughs> yeah. yeah um do you want to talk a little bit about um the the last album the ghost of the sun the one that came out so you had a lot of extra material after you recorded roses Is when that- we recorded roses and, and it was at the same we did that and and goes to the sun at the same time um you know we had two days in a very fancy studio and uh, avatar in new york um studio b which is the same same studio where they did like a virgin by madonna <laughs> <laughs> incidentally <laughs> So, you know, I never thought that would happen growing up in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, we had, uh, sorry, my voice is a little scratchy in the morning. We, we had um, we had two days in the studio and a lot of material because at that point, Paul had gotten the group into the Village Vanguard and we had played several different weeks there over about, I guess, uh, four years. Uh-huh. And... Um, and Reed and, and Ben on uh, were really uh, great at rehearsing. They rehearsed a lot with me. They knew all the music really, really, really well. And by that point, Paul knew the new the, a lot of the songs really well too because we had played them live s- uh, several times. So it was, a, it was a different feeling in the studio. It was kind of you know whatever we had more history together. And I knew going into it, I actually financed that album myself. I mean, with help of a lot of other people. I sold one of my saxophones and borrowed money and this and that. Wow, yeah. And I financed the album, and I own both of those albums. They're put out by Sunnyside, but I own those records. And so since I was spending all that money, I was like, I really want to get two albums out of this. Uh-huh, so yeah, so you recorded so it with that intention. Material. And at the time, I, I said, okay, I'm going to put out this stuff on one record, but I'm saving these other songs for another record. And I just, since it was from the same session, I wanted to have kind of contrasting albums. I think that they have a little bit of a different feel, like Roses is maybe a little little bit more raw or a little maybe a little freer, where like Ghost to the Sun is a little more melodic and kind of tuneful. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a little smoother. A yeah. little bit, you know. I mean, you know, anyway, so I had held on to goes to the sun you know the stuff from that and i hadn't mixed it and i kept just kept it on a hard drive and i kind of carried it around with me i was like okay i'm just going to keep this in a safe place until you know i have the budget to go mix it and do some more things with it and um funny thing that happened so i brought it up to maine with me in the summertime i didn't want to leave it in my apartment in new york and i you know i'd stayed up in maine and stayed with my family up there for a couple months and then I went back to New York, and uh, you know, some time went by, and I started looking for it. I couldn't find it anywhere. 
the hard drive with all the music on it. And I really panicked. And I called my mother up and I said, Mom, you know, did I leave a hard drive? I think it's there in your house. Did I leave a hard drive in in the closet there in the, you know, in the bedroom I would have stayed with? Can you look for that? And she looked and said, no, 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 it's not there. And I said, oh, boy. I called other people and I said, did I give it to you? Did I, you know, I started thinking I was really nuts. I tore apart my whole apartment. I'd been living here for, you know, 12 years. I had so much junk and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I thought, oh, boy, did I screw this up? Anyway, so then I went up to visit my mom again in, in the fall, and I woke up from a dream, like real suddenly, at about 7 in the morning, which, as I stated, isn't my normal habit to wake up uh-huh. suddenly at 7 in the morning, with a real clarity. And I just got up out of bed, I went over to that closet, I opened the door to it, and there it was. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting there, and... um you know, I said, Mom, there's this, you know, that's what I was looking for when I called you. And she said, oh, I thought your brother-in-law gave me that box. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was something else. I said, well, it says hard drive. She goes, I don't know what a hard drive is. I said, well, it says hard drive right on it. It says McHenry right next to that. But and she said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, oh, I'm just so glad I found it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was where I left it all along, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think people would like to hear a little bit maybe about how... Oh, young man from rural Maine, um, yeah. you know, dedicated his life to the saxophone and oh, yeah. all that. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like growing up? And I mean, you love jazz well, from a young age, it sounds like. Well, um, you know, it didn't, uh, yeah, it was kind of a roundabout way, um, but it had a lot to do with my family. My mother, um, when I was about three or four years old, my mother was, uh, she was a French major in college and was teaching, and she was, uh, you know, he taught French at, at University of Maine in Orono. She would drive up from uh, uh, Penobscot, where we lived, and do that a couple times a week, and she had started getting tired of that, and um, she had played the piano as a girl, but had stopped it when she was about 18, and started learning piano again at around 35, I guess, and learning all these pieces, you know, Debussy and Ravel and Bach and these slow piano pieces. And played it and was obsessed and practiced for hours and hours in the house when I was growing up as a kid. And eventually started a little studio and started teaching the Suzuki method and very quickly had, you know, 20 or 25 students in the house a week. Wow. And yeah, and then she started teaching my my little sister had started to fool around with the piano and had a really nice touch. Beautiful, just, you know, natural talent for it, just natural, beautiful touch. And um, I went to go play the piano and, uh, you know, I was excited and I goofed around with it. And they said, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. You don't have a, you know, you're banging on it. You don't have a good touch. Don't play the piano. I said, okay, whatever. It's not for me. But when I was 10... Uh, they offer the instruments in in public school. I don't know if they, you know, it depends probably what town you're in, but yeah, our town still does. I think it's a great, yeah, great program. Yeah. So fifth grade, they offered all the instruments, and my friends that I wanted to hang out with were going to play saxophone, and I wanted to play, and I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, I was into um, uh, what's that group uh, from Australia? They had that song, "Who Can It Be Now?" You know? Yeah, I know the song. I'm not sure the name of it. Then it worked. Yeah. Da, da, dee, da, da, doo, doo, dee. So I thought, oh, I want to play saxophone. 
And so I went home and I told my parents that I wanted to play saxophone. And they looked at me and they said, you? <laughs> they, they didn't think that was a good idea at all. And, um, and they said, well, you can, you know, if you want to play saxophone, you have to start on clarinet. Like, that was an old myth. Like, saxophone isn't a legitimate instrument. You have to start on clarinet. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I had seen the Benny Goodman story on TV with my family, and I hated it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, I didn't want to play the clarinet at all. You know, I knew it from, um, I knew it from Peter and the Wolf and, uh, and Benny Goodman's story. And I liked it a little more on Peter and the Wolf, but I did not want to play the clarinet. So there we are at school. You know, and, and we're all saying what instruments we're going to play. And this girl who had been in class with me the whole time I'd been at school there in Orono, her, she raised her hand right before I did, and she said, I'm going to play clarinet. And, I, and I'd been in her, every single class with her and this and that. And, she, you know, she was nice, but she kind of bothered me a little bit. And I said, I am not going to sit through this. <laughs> <laughs> and so my first act of rebellion as a kid, because I was very obedient, I raised my hand and said saxophone. I went home to the paper and I said, I'm going to play saxophone. And we got in this big fight. But they said, okay, well, you can do it, but you got to practice it. And if you don't, we're taking it right back, uh-huh. you know, the <laughs> rental. And I said, I'll show them. And I started, you know, so we got this, put the instrument together, played, a, you know, I found out, I, and the sound came out, and I learned how to play a few notes. And my dad said to me later that he was really dreading that moment, you know, and, uh, you know, he thought, oh, boy, you know, I already got these 25 kids coming over learning Suzuki. You know, he <laughs> walked out of the house, too, as an architect. He had his own, a home office. And he said, you know, I don't I don't, really don't want to hear a little Billy wailing away on the saxophone upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's loud, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it depends how you play it. But he said that naturally when I went and played it, the same way my sister had a good touch on the piano, he said I had a nice sound on the saxophone. Mm-hmm. It just sounded normal. You know, it sounded like what a saxophone sounds like. And, you know, next thing you know, we picked out what the notes were. You know, we were just doing this from the book that they give you with the saxophone. And my mom said, oh, well, if you know these notes, then you can play such and such Suzuki piece. And she accompanied me on the piano. And next thing after that, I knew is she started buying sheet music from the store of, of um of adapted classical pieces for the alto saxophone. Uh-huh. And she would accompany me on piano. So before I took private lessons, um, she accompanied me for about two years, and I played all sorts of beautiful pieces. So I learned how to play the instrument by playing things like Pavan for a Dead Princess or, you know, you know, beautiful, beautiful lyrical stuff. Yeah, and didn't, didn't you, you were telling me that you found out that was it your great-great-grandfather was a classical musician? That's right. Yeah. That's, and, well, that, that was in my family. Yeah, there was always this family history that my great-great-grandfather was a composer named Horatio Parker. And he started the music school at uh, Yale. Uh-huh. He, first, he started the music program there, was the first head of the music school, composition teacher. And his famous student was Charles Ives. Oh, uh-huh. So, so there was always this kind of, but, but then, you know, further generations weren't musicals, but there was always this family legend of this composer. And in, you know, in Blue Hill, there was a summer house that our family still owns that goes back, you know, a hundred years to his time that was his, that still has these photos up of these guys playing chamber music in like the late 1800s with Uh these big statues and stuff. Oh, that's neat. 
Yeah, but but when anyway, the way I got out of Maine, what happened was uh, when I was uh, about fourteen, my parents uh, were going to leave Maine, and they were separating at the same time, and my mom was moving with my sister to Miami, Florida, and my dad I think was going to go back from Orono to back to Blue Hill, and they weren't really sure what to do with me, and there was a guy down the street who had gone to Interlochen Arts Academy, a music boarding school. Mm-hmm. And they found out about it, and uh, I went there and visited it. And I you know, auditioned and got into the school, and they gave me a little scholarship, and they said the price of it wouldn't go up while I was there. So at the time, I, I paid six, I think my, I didn't pay anything. My family paid about six grand a year for me to live there and go to school there for four years. Uh-huh. So it was an incredible education. Yeah. You know, it's much better than my college education. That's why I dropped out of college after a year because I, you know, they don't they didn't, weren't teaching me anything really new. The students and the teachers were great, but the program wasn't that great. You uh-huh. know? So you're pretty. So after that, you you're pretty self-taught. Then you didn't go to you didn't go to like Berkeley or any of those no, kind of well, schools. No, I was in the conservatory for a year, but yeah. I I did um I did take private lessons um after being in New York for about seven years i i i um i i tracked down to redmond oh, and yeah. and i took uh two great two-hour lessons from him uh on how to play long tones just how to strengthen your sound um basically a very simple method but very useful and practical and it and it and it just took what i already had and, and made it a lot stronger mm-hmm and in, in fact, and I keep working on method now. I mean, I'm, as far as my physical stuff on the saxophone, I think I'm stronger now than I was when I, you know, recorded with Paul. Uh huh. Yeah. And so, are you going to be up here this summer at all, or do you not know yet? Yeah, I will. Will yeah. at some point, you know. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was, um, you know, when I was younger and had less responsibility, I would just sublet my apartment for three months and stay there, you know, or four even sometimes, and I just stay there. June, July, August, and September, just, you know, mm-hmm. running around like Huck Finn, you know. <laughs> but uh, these days, you know, these days I'm I'm not there quite as much, but uh, I hope to be. I, I'll, I'll, I'm always there at least for a couple weeks. Uh-huh. Um, so we only have a few minutes till the top of the hour, but I think so. But I think I'm going to run my show over because there's no one after me. So, um, um, but because um, I really wanted to play social unconsciousness. Oh, yeah. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about how that became your theme song. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I originally wrote the song. I wrote the song. Was You know, I don't most of my songs aren't about anything like, you know, singer songwriter style. But this one, it really was. I was uh, visiting a girlfriend of mine in Colorado. And for some reason, she was riding around on her bike and some jerk shot at her with a paint gun and it just scared the hell out of her and it hurt too but it just scared her so much and uh and it was right after and it was you know and i think bush had just gotten elected with the you know the questionable election and all that and i was just all roused up and i thought god why would somebody you know how unconscious do you have to be to want to do that to somebody Uh you know what does that get you know, and um, and I was thinking about in the 60s, they talked about social consciousness. 
And I said, man, our problem now is social unconsciousness. And I was all fired up about it. And I wrote that song in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, as far as, ins you know, the musical inspiration for it, it's kind of like inspired by Charlie Hayden. Uh -huh. The simple kind of theme, the way that he would play that, uh, a really strong, simple theme, but move it around some keys. Kind of, it, to me, it was obvious that it sounded like Charlie Hayden. Of course, you know, I don't know if other people thought so or not, but he was the inspiration for that. And um, and then we, so yeah, we brought I brought it in the studio for that first record, <clears throat> and it's kind of got a rock feeling to it. But I didn't want to tell Paul Motion, you know, hey, we're gonna do a rock song, you know. Uh huh. I was just, you know, it's too audacious, you know. <laughs> So what we did instead is <clears throat> I said to the guys, well, why don't we just play it? You know, sometimes I would say to Paul, if we were recording, we'll play you a couple bars of it so you can see what the feel of it is. Mm -hmm. So we played a few bars of it, and he said, oh, that sounds like you're playing, you know, like a rock. <laughs> sounds like a rock thing. And I knew he could do it, do it great because uh, there's this song from a record of his called Psalm, this song called White Magic. Yeah. Where he plays almost like a CBGB's kind of punk groove on it. And yeah. it's great. I loved it. And so I, I really wanted to do something like that with him. So we did that, and it came out well on the album. And um, I started ending the set with it when we played at the Vanguard. Because sometimes, you know, we would play all this free music for about an hour, and the audience would be into it, but kind of spaced out. Yeah, I've got to go to the top of the hour. So can you stay on for a few more minutes? This yeah, is, I'll I, hang I, on. Okay, I've got like a three-minute thing. Okay. Okay, go for it. Yeah. Okay, we're back on the air, and I'm, I'm making an executive decision and extending Uncle Paul's Jazz Closet a few minutes so we can talk some more to Bill McHenry. Uh, Bill, you're on the air. Hello, still here? Yeah, we can hear you. Uh so, I've had time to clear my throat. Oh, good. So you wanted to talk a little bit about um, about some of the stuff that didn't happen with Paul that was in the planning stages oh, um, yeah. before he got sick. Right, exactly. Right. Well, we had two things booked that in November, uh, and, you know, it was they, they, they happened before he passed, but that was when you were with him in the, in the hospital, and, you know, he's... He, he didn't, you know, he, he, had, he had canceled everything by September, I guess. And we had these two weeks in November. And one was with his group and one was with my group. And they were going to be back to back. We'd both be on both of them. And um, the one with my group that we never got to do is I really wanted to, uh, he had mentioned to me, oh, you know, I, I want to hear you with a piano player. And... Um, you know, we had worked a little bit with piano with Masabumi Kikuchi and then later in his octet with Jacob Sachs. Um, but there were some guys that I really wanted, uh, that I had played with once, that I really wanted to mix with Paul. I thought it would be great. Uh, Oren Evans, a pianist, and Eric Rebus, a bassist. And they knew about Paul's music and liked it. And um, I just thought that they would have brought a great energy to Paul. I just wanted to see that kind of, you know, hit, hit each other. Then that, that never happened. But, um, so, you know, just for the sake of history, I don't know. I just feel like saying that because it was important. It was a big deal for us. And, um, fortunately what happened was Andrew Cyril, who's a contemporary of Paul's 
available to substitute for Paul that that night. And that group ended up being a band. And since then, we played several times with that quartet with Andrew there on drums. And um, But the other thing that we didn't get to do, which I was very curious about, is he had been telling me for a while that he wanted to start a new group. And we had done kind of a version of it earlier. Um, with Oscar Noriega on clarinet and alto, and he wanted to bring in uh, uh, Doug Weiss on bass and Frank Kimbrough on piano, and he had new music that he had Hello? written. You still got me, Cindy? Yeah, sorry, the phone was ringing, and I. I was, oh, okay. But it's I don't I don't understand how to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Probably complaining about me being on the radio still, but. <laughs> No, I don't think so. So, um, and then, yeah, we, you so there's want... songs of his that he wrote, and he had this new group, and, you know, and we never got to hear them. Well, I, you know, I I think I may have discovered those, so, um, and so, yeah, I'm going to send you some stuff, and I'm having a little hard time identifying if it's old stuff or new stuff, and um, so, I, yeah, I think there are some new songs that no one's ever heard before, so that would be well, pretty exciting to... yeah. Yeah. Well, when in doubt, carbon testing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might be out of our budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought I'd just ask. Uh, yeah. I think if I show them to, like, Steve Kadanis and Bill Frizzell and you, like, we, we can figure it out, you know? I think so, too. Yeah. But there's just some titles that I've never heard, so. Um, but, okay. Yeah. So they could be, the, that could be the new stuff. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. He said they were, I remember him kind of talking about them like with some excitement, like, oh, I have a new batch of stuff and they're very simple, but I like them a lot and uh-huh. I want to hear you do them and, you know, so on. Yeah. So, um, that's cool. So you want to say something about Art Blakey and then, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, well, like, yeah, it's true. I mean, I could, again, this is a big subject for me. I mean, Palm Motion, just to wind it up, I'll try and, you know, get through for your sake of your show. He, to play with him was a huge, huge deal for me in my life. You know, he's somebody who I always related to musically, even when I was just listening to him and I didn't even know what his name was. I just related to the way he played music. And then I didn't I wasn't even especially a great student of his music, but the more I started hearing of it, the more I liked it. And uh, you know, the few albums I got I really liked and the more you know, so on and so forth. And he was one of the big people, you know, when I moved to New York in 92, I said, well, you know, we were sitting around with a friend saying, well, if you could play with any three drummers, who would they be? Right. And I was and I said, well, Elvin Jones, Jack T. Jeanette and Paul Motion, you know, any of the- if I could play with any of those three guys, I'd be happy. It'd be worth it. And, you know, so be- just being able to play with him, period, was a huge deal. Even just being able to hear him. I mean, I didn't you know, I wasn't. If I had never been able to play with him, I would have been really happy just about it, being able to hear him live a bunch. Uh-huh. But, but he was, but he he always listed Art Blakey as an influence, uh, along with some of the guys like Philly, Philly Joe Jones and Kenny Clark and stuff. And I never really understood that as far as his playing because I associated it with like the later Art Blakey with Wayne Shorter or with Bobby Timmons and stuff. But I was listening to a CD. <clears throat> that uh, was at his apartment that uh, that that uh, you had given me a Miles Davis CD uh-huh. with Art Blakey on it that was earlier from 1951, and that's probably back more when Paul was sitting around checking out other drummers, 
19, you know, 1951, he's still more, you know, learning from other guys directly. And that early style of Art Blakey playing swing sounded a lot like Paul Munch. A lot. So, and, and also the fact that, you know, he took a lot of music swing like Art Blakey did. Okay, Bill, are you still there? Oh, yeah, Cutting yeah. Edge Main Radio. I'm right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's, I so, want to give just a little shout out also to our friend Byron Graderix. Oh, He's good. The first, first guy to put me on the radio, WERU. I was 17 years old. Yeah. And, and I was listening to his show, and he said, "Does?" And he said in his, you know, his great voice, "Does anyone out there have any Charlie Parker records?" Uh huh. And I, you know, calling the station because we need some more Charlie Parker. And I called him up and I said, "I have five Charlie Parker records." And he said, you sound kind of young. Why do you have five Charlie Parker records? And I said, well, I play the saxophone. Yeah. And he said, oh, come on, play it on the radio. Yeah. That's neat. You know, he has a used record store in Camden now, uh, Spirit yeah. of Sound. And I, I go there and we chat. And, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to uh, hear you play up here again sometime oh, in the too. near future. So. Me too. Well, yeah. I, would, I, would, uh, I would do whatever I could to help that. So. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, because he used to organize some live stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to uh, go take us to the end of the show with the social unconsciousness. Which... Okay. I, I, can I want to say one final thing about Paul? Yes, please do. You, you know, um, just as far as like, you know, things for other musicians listening and, or whatever, as far as anybody I've been around, including all my buddies and contemporaries and friends that I've spent much more time with, no one that I've been around was as curious and as interested and in, and uh, about what I was working on with music as he was. Every time I saw him, he asked me if I was writing new music, if I had new material for the next gig. Every time I saw him, he, and, and whenever I told him I was working on some kind of musical idea <clears throat> or technique or theory and was curious about it, he would always listen to it and say, man, that's what you have to do. You should always be looking for something like that, whatever it is, whether it was from intervals or modes or, you know, things I was learning from Ornette Coleman or whatever. He said, it doesn't matter. Just always have something like that. Keep that going. And he always asked me if I was writing. Always. You know, just that energy of that. He had that, uh, you know, the whole 10 years I played with him. That was never absent. And, and on the bandstand, it was also never absent. He was never bored on the bandstand. He might be upset with like a low quality of music, but he was never bored. And Reed Anderson pointed out to me, he said, everything Paul does, whether we're playing swing or free or whatever, whatever decision he makes, the decision is a decision to bring more energy to the band. Now, the decision could be to lay out and not play anything. The decision could be to play harder or to push something or to play against it. But he's always creating more energy. And it was it was so consistent. And, um, you know, he was more like that in all those ways than any musician I've been around. And I'll take that with me my whole life. And it encourages me to be that kind of person myself. Because I think we all have that in us, especially young people. We all have that kind of sense, like he's like a superhero with music, you know, we all want to be superheroes. And, you know, like Bill Frizzell said in his eulogy, you know, Paul showed him the way. He really showed me the way, too. He showed yeah, anybody who was around him the way. 
And he was very open about that. And it wasn't just secret knowledge for special people. He would tell the waiters at the club stuff if they asked him, you know, uh-huh. he would tell anybody who he was around. He was very open about it. Once, you know, once he, he knew that you weren't somebody trying to get something from him, uh-huh. you know, he was very, he would, he would tell anybody about all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. He really had a great attention that, you know, his attention was so focused when he and, was and, with you or talking to you. Yep. Yeah. And, and he had, and he had a huge regard and deep respect for the history of, of uh of black american jazz music he you know he related to where it was coming from you know like you know you know with his good with his family history Mm -hmm. and he respected it and he lived for that and felt like one of them now he felt and he felt included yeah like part of it and it was a it was a big deal and um he was a great great role model couldn't have asked for anybody better that's neat. So if you're up here this summer, then you can maybe you could come on the show live. That would be fun. We could have you back because there's so much music that we I didn't get to. Sure. Uh, yeah. That would be fun. Okay. Yeah. It'd be, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we can get any. We can still have technical difficulties, maybe. Even if <laughs> yeah, probably will. But okay. So I'm going to play "Social Unconsciousness," the Bill McHenry tune from Bill McHenry Quartet featuring Paul Modian in 2002. And I want to thank Bill McHenry for coming on. And um, here you go. And Thanks for having me. And hi to all my friends in Maine. You're welcome, Bill. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 